Earplay was the longest running of the formal series of radio drama anthologies on National Public Radio, heard from 1972 into the 1990s. It approached radio drama as an art form with scripts written by such leading playwrights as Edward Albee, Arthur Coppett, Archibald MacLeish, and David Mamet. Airing in stereo, Earplay provided a showcase for original and adapted work. Eventually, the less sustained successor series, NPR Playhouse, drew episodes from the Earplay run. Often presented by NPR member stations on a weekly basis, Earplay episodes were produced with much attention to recording technique and sound effects. In 1975, it scored a triumph with listening, an original play written by Edward Albee for stereo radio, employing one speaker for one character and another speaker for another character. Since both characters are seated in a room, the illusion is created that they are in the same room as the listener. After its premiere on radio, listening was later performed on stage. On this track, you will hear part one of the BBC production of Judgment. Andrei Vukov, a Russian army captain, stands alone before his judges. The story he tells is part fiction, but certain details are factual. They relate to an event during World War II. The location was a hilltop monastery in southern Poland. Abandoning the monastery, the Germans left a number of captured Soviet officers locked in the cellar. Two of the prisoners managed to stay alive by killing and devouring their companions. Eventually, the two survivors were found out of their minds by the advancing Red Army. First they were given a decent meal, then they were shot, lest the soldiers see to what wretchedness their former officers had been reduced. Afterward, the monastery was destroyed. Lukov's monologue, which is what this play is made up of, is a reimagination of the monastery incident based on the premise that one of the survivors was sane and was asked to give a report before facing judgment. The play was written by Barry Collins and starred Colin Blakely as Captain Andre Bukov, and it was originally performed by the BBC National Theatre in London on August 16, 1975. The play consists of two parts. To the best of my knowledge, part one aired April 2, 1978, and part two aired April 9, 1978. This is Heirloom Radio, a different kind of oldies program. My name is John Lovering, and thank you for listening. Earplay is made possible by grants from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and the National Endowment for the Arts. A series of contemporary plays for radio. Earplay. presents Judgment, a dramatic monologue in two parts by Barry Collins. Judgment was first performed at the National Theater in England with Colin Blakely as Captain Vukov. Mr. Blakely recreates the role in this BBC production. Part one of Judgment by Barry Collins. Comrades, I sense that I disgust you. 
My composure, I think, revolts you. My normality. Forgive me, I understand your distaste. I know I cannot expect your pity. But then I do not seek your pity. I see your pity turns instead upon my brother, Rubin. That, too, I understand. I would have it so. Yet, lacking your pity, I must look to my defense, should you permit it. And since you judge rather than pity me, I think you can hardly deny me my defense. For my part, I am content to be judged. I see my protection in your judgment, not your pity. May I enter, then, a plea of guilty? But, of course, how could I not be guilty in such a case? I am guilty, I assure you. Then why a defense? Comrade, excuse the irregularity. I propose to defend my guilt. If you will allow it, I shall even bring a witness to my guilt, a silent witness. Forgive me, it is the thigh bone of Officer Lubianco, to be precise, the left thigh bone, sharpened, you will note, to a point on the stone floor of our cell for the purpose of killing Officer Rubin. My brother, Rubin, I confess it for killing Comrade Officer Rubin at our eventual moment of trial, had it come to that, between him and me, Rubin and Bukov, the two last of our seven. At that moment, that final moment, could I have destroyed him, you will ask. I ask myself, could I have done it? And I know I cannot tell. How can I tell what I would have done? How can we ever tell? Please, I beg you, disregard my last question. I discuss no generalities. The history is mine for me alone, the question. Most certainly not for you. How could I presume to ask what you would have done? The problem is, what would I have done? And I admit, I do not know. There are, however, certain facts I can offer for your consideration. For example that I joined readily, in full reason, in the death of Officer Tretchikov. Colonel Tretchikov, it was. Comrade, I see it. You are astonished that I, a captain merely, Captain Vukov, Andrei Vukov, Captain Andrei Vukov, Tank Squadron, 3rd Assault Brigade, that I, Vukov, should willingly have shared in the death of a superior, a comrade, and brother. Nonetheless, it was so. I conceal nothing. Though you can only have my word for that, since Officer Rubin is no longer himself. Which, I suppose, might appear to introduce another fact, were it not a matter of opinion. I mean, my brother Rubin's state of mind. Since our deliverance, you have kept Comrade Rubin asleep in a closed room, his body bound, his spirit screened. Permit me, in exchange for one dungeon, you confine him to another, still darker, by which I conclude you consider him to have lost his reason. Such it would seem are the judgments of pity. After the torment Officer Rubin has undergone, I myself might assess his present state of mind differently, were I able, that is, to know his state of mind. In the matter of my own mind, I'd gladly leave you to judge as best you can, and be assured I sympathize, since you must decide what shall be done with me. Now, for the purposes, I say, you will need certain facts. And there are these, principally these. That I and six comrade officers, captured in the enemy counteroffensive along Salient 14, were entombed in a cell in the abandoned monastery of St. Peter Rabinovitz on the 23rd of May, a cell measuring 11 paces long by 9 paces wide and some 20 feet high, and that in this cell, without food or water, my brothers and I remained for more than two months until the enemy was pushed back yet again and we were released. That is, Officer Rubin and I. 
the two survivors. Now, comrades, surely you cannot miss the paradox here, the paradox we two present. Perhaps you would term it something else, something less neutral, but I prefer the paradox of Major Rubin's insanity, as you conceive it, and my composure. No, I thought not. Your suspicions are evident. Am I then sane, who marshal my thoughts, my words, as you do, who can muster reason to defend obscenities that should strike reason dumb? I see that my own state of mind, in your assessment, is my accuser. And with that, too, I am content. I am not as I should be, you feel. How can it be that I am so composed? I am not as Officer Rubin, whom you judge deranged. Therefore, I am twice an obscenity. Is it not so? Now, forgive me, comrades. I am what I am. Upon your paradox, all I would say is that at the last, my brother Rubin's state of mind allowed me some advantage over him. And had we not been, as it were, disinterred, I should have had to decide upon employment of that advantage, or otherwise. For by the eighth week, yes, the eighth week, I kept the days most carefully, comrades, by the sun, since we were stripped of our effects, stripped of everything, left naked when the enemy imprisoned us, stripped even of our uniforms, a cruel touch that, I think, to take our uniforms and the circumstances, however. By the sun, entering and leaving our cell each day through a small barred window high on the outer wall, by the sun, I say, I at least kept time, kept strict time, and by the eighth week, when we were alone, he and I, the last two, the survivors, Officer Reuben was much changed. His strength remained, much greater strength than mine. He was the gymnast, let me tell you, in his respites from the war. But he sobbed so, he wept and moaned and screamed by turns. He babbled like a child and tore his hair and clawed his skin. He clawed a hole in his side with his fingernails and another in his neck. Doubtless your doctors have noticed them, deep holes, festering. Sometimes he slept quite unguardedly, and then I would leave my wall and go to him, to nurse him, to cradle him. You doubt me. I see it, comrades. You remember my witness. I'm glad you remember it, the piece of bone, the sharpened thigh bone, poor Lubyanko's thigh bone. You remember it, and you ask, are we to believe, then, that a man who has already prepared the means of his brother's death will yet nurse that same brother as he lies, defenseless, in his arms? Or is it the tenderness, may I call it so, the tenderness? Is it the tenderness itself you cannot accept at such an extremity? Do you perhaps consider me incapable of tenderness? No, no, that question, too, is unworthy. Forgive me. It must be enough for me to say that in the days of my brother Reuben's pain, I cradled him in his sleep and would hold him then until he woke a little clearer, less distraught, and would throw me aside back to my wall in fear, you understand, at his own unguardedness, only to begin his weeping again a moment later. I even fed him. Oh, come now, comrades, yes, I fed him. Your horror, it is not reasonable, I reject it. Be frank, what hope have I of you in such horror? How do you think we were still alive, Officer Reuben and I, after 60 days? I fed him, comrades, as I fed myself, on the flesh of our dead brothers. And your horror at that feeding, your shrinking from it, they do you no credit here in this wide room as my judges. That's a story we're new to you if you had not heard it. But by now the whole army must have heard it. Such a monster story could not easily be hidden. Well, why then this horror at hearing it again from me, unless it is me personally you find so horrifying? Now, comrades, I declare... Your honor, it is not real. It is formal. It is a revulsion, not of reason, but of sentiment. Now, if you judge me, haven't I the right at least to your reason? The emotion of horror. I would grant only to Officer Scriabin. Presumably you have read this report. I shall spare you repetition. But to Scriabin alone, I would concede horror. 
to the young lieutenant of infantry who broke open the door of our prison and in the beam of his torch saw me feeding my brother Reuben, saw me feeding him the flesh of another man, and saw the remains of our dead comrades. But you, my judges, have seen nothing. You have only heard. It is only words you hear, words you recoil from. And if these words revolt you the more because they are my words, because my words are composed and clear, the words of knowing, not of rumor and report, if these words disgust you, then you have judged me already in your hearts. And such judgment brings shame as much upon you as it brings upon me. Before supper that judgment, I would beg the pity you have shown to Officer Rubin, for my brother Rubin, could he speak of it, would say you have heard little yet. And how can you judge without proper hearing? I'm sure you did not think to avoid a proper hearing. Or perhaps you suspect I seek to spread my guilt by speaking it, not at all, comrade. I am unrepresentative. I require no excuse. I will be content to carry my guilt alone among you. But you, forgive me, will not have it so. You would make some decision, some ruling upon me. And I accept that. Comrades, I accept your need, correction, your duty to judge me. I submit to it. I know the questions you must try to answer. Oh, yes, comrades, I appreciate your perplexity. You wonder how a sane man could return whole, as it were, from such an experience. You examine Officer Rubin, washed clean now of all that filth and blood, his hair shorn and his beard, his bowels sealed, his wounds dressed. And you know that if he woke, he would be wild. He would cower against the wall, more like an animal than a man, you would say. With his fingers crooked, his tongue lolling, and he would howl and howl and howl. So you bind him down, comrades, in his closed white cubicle, with thick straps of the arms and legs, and you keep him asleep. You keep him from his own mind, because you pity the terror you think it brings him. You consider him mad, and his madness authentic, a healthy reaction, forgive the irony, to his torment. Yet because his wildness is unseemly, because he would be a danger, loose to himself and to others, you anesthetize him to a cleanly calm. You restore him, as it were, to his lost humanity by making him a breathing corpse. And if you held him there long enough, comrades, you might almost forget the tale he cannot tell, except you know there is such fear, such agony, locked within that quiet sleep, and you wonder sometimes, does he dream? And you think perhaps to put him out of his misery. But should you do that? Should you presume to do it? What then would you do with me, who am not noticeably miserable? Or lacking that presumption, would you keep my brother Reuben estranged from his new self until he should die, as it were, naturally? And in that case again, comrades, what will be done with me? Would I too be set apart from myself? I need no such protection from others. Forgive me, I would ask upon what grounds. Am I not fit for a turn for war? Am I otherwise than normal, less than human? Now, examine me, comrades. Allowing the customary effects of such incarceration, a yellowing of the skin, a certain weakness of the chest and limbs, a tendency to stoop, a certain frailty of the bladder, I think I function normally enough in the circumstances. Why not? It is remarkable, comrades, what the human system can absorb, the human frame subsist upon. Considered objectively, that is to say, dietetically, many men have fed far worse than I, and yet survived. You couldn't believe that one man's flesh would rot another's innards, that one man's blood would stop another's veins. That would be superstition, wouldn't it? My body argues so. Were I to father a child at this moment, I think its birth, other things being equal, would not prove monstrous. Even that horror, perhaps, your comrades. Perhaps especially that. You make no pretense of your horror. At what? That I should so feel such ordinary desires. My pulse is steady, my temperature is regular, my heart is sound. By any medical test I am, I suggest, only marginally unhealthy. Am I then to be kept from my wife and children, restrained, quarantined, to prevent contamination? Or am I as normal as I seem, unusual only in what I have experienced?
You see, comrades, I recognize your dilemma as I borrow your categories. How precisely am I changed? Am I, so to speak, of any further use? But first and above all, I suppose, the question of my present composure. Is it merely a skin beneath which those dreadful days still boil? How have I escaped when my brother Reuben has been so hurt? Now, may it not be that I have escaped unfairly? Am I not correct? You suspect me of a certain criminality. You must interrogate me. Must put my experience to the test of your laws, your codes, your judgment. Which judgment you seek to extend without limit to all things human and heretofore divine. Very well, comrades. I am prepared. I can see that I must earn my return to customary society, that is, forgive me, to the war, by establishing my fitness for the war. But you judge my present fitness, it seems, only by judging my recent experience. Therefore, I maintain you must hear the facts of that experience. Is it not so? I almost said the truth of my experience, absurd. Rather, the facts. The truth of my facts is for you to assess. So I beg you, comrades, hear me. Listen with your stomachs, if you will, with your noses and your tongues, your teeth, if you must. Even listen, yes, with your hearts. But at least, comrades, listen. Do me that service, please, to hear what I tell and remember it as you judge me. Now, in turn, I can perhaps offer certain preliminary details, verifiable details, I think, to encourage your trust in my accuracy. Colonel Tretchikov, for instance had a wife with only one breast who fed her fourth child upon that one breast solely without undue discomfort. Again, I shock you, comrades. Such mundanity in the circumstances, it disturbs you. But I wonder, in your experience, what do men do when imprisoned together? Don't they talk at first? And at first, don't they talk with themselves and their families? And so Officer Tretchikov spoke of his wife to me. Yes, to a subordinate, he spoke to me of his wife's deformity. Similarly, I spoke to him of my wife. The little toe on her right foot is missing, as it happens, and she has a scar on her throat which she tries to hide by keeping her hair long. It is not unusual, I think. Officer Lysenko spoke of the death of his mother. Officer Lysenko, comrades. Lysenko. Major Lysenko. Tank Squadron, 3rd Assault Brigade. You have the names, I presume, the seven names. Officer Trechikov, Officer Lysenko, Officer Lubyanko, Officer Banashevsky, Officer Block, Officer Rubin, and myself, Bukov. Andrei Bukov. Seven men, in rank from Colonel Trechikov to Company Sergeant Banashevsky. Lev Alexandrovich Banashevsky, comrades. We grew up together, he and I. We were boys together in Ryazan. We joined the war together, fought through four retreats and three offensives together. He had been decorated after the fifth, no, the sixth battle for the very monastery, St. Peter Rabinovich, where we were imprisoned. And this Friend, yes, comrades, this childhood friend, this dearest of brothers, I gnawed his flesh. Yes, I tore at his body. I sucked his bones. Yes, comrades, your horror is so predictable. Must I accommodate my experience to your feelings as well as to your scales, your rules, your measures of behavior? You have a chart, have you, a graph, a checklist against which you can range my testimony, ticking off my evidence against your categories to calculate the degree of my residual humanity. And in your categories, comrades, tell me, does the flesh of a friend taste worse, less wholesome, than that of a mere acquaintance, brother officer, compatriot, and fellow prisoner? Perhaps you will allow me to suggest certain new categories for your list. For example, I might detail, in order of preference, the choicest regions of the human anatomy. Oh, 
yes, Conway, do not doubt it. How could you possibly doubt it? One develops one's likes and dislikes in such a case as in any other. Shall I be lowing, do you think, or thigh, kidneys, or liver? Come now, comrades, do not shrink. Remember, listen with your tongues. Shall I tell you how long it takes six men to tear another man to pieces using only their teeth and fingernails? Shall I tell you why genitals tend to be left late in such a case and heads left quite alone? Does blood taste better warm or cold, comrades? Shall I tell you? Shall I report my own findings? I am a connoisseur of sorts in these matters. Well, surely my findings will prove valuable. Surely you will welcome such rare data. Might you not even honor me for it? Am I not, in fact, a hero, the man who has come through, the survivor? And might I not, therefore, lay some claim to your admiration? Might I not deserve a decoration? Am I not a walking testimony to the effectiveness of our basic survival training? Well, perhaps not. When my six brothers, five now dead and one asleep, all graduated by the same course as I. Were we victims, then, of some fate beyond the manual of basic training? Yes, comrades, victims. Should I pay the victim? Should I fall to my knees before you, asking how I have offended God that he could have done this to me? or bewailing the monstrous alien universe in which we all suffer so terribly, so incomprehensibly, and of which suffering, my own suffering is part, and me, your exemplar in such suffering. Should I enter a complaint, comrades, an existential complaint, saying I did not ask to be shut without sustenance for 60 days in a cell with six others? Comrades, should I say it wasn't my fault? Or should I stay silent? Is that it, comrades? Is that what you want? Is that what you demand of me, the courtesy of keeping quiet, of sparing you the enormity of what I have to tell? Really, comrades, it cannot be. In fairness to myself. Now, don't you already have the evidence of the young lieutenant of infantry, Officer Scriabin, who found my brother Reuben and I and freed us? To remain silent after such testimony would be to condemn myself before you. Comrades, let me remind you. I spoke to Scriabin. And having once spoken, silence for me became impossible. The silence was for my brother Reuben, at least the lack of words, and now you seek to perfect his silence. But for me, the moment I gave sign of rationality, it became necessary to defend that rationality. And I remember it, the exact moment, the precise sequence of moments. It was night, the 60th night, only faint moonlight through the high grill, and suddenly the sound of footsteps beyond the door. A sudden vaulting in my heart, the shock, comrades. My ears pricking like a dog's, my breath caught, not thinking to shout, to intervene. My body rigid in attention, the shock, I say, comrades, commingled already with regret, dismay even, a fractional dismay, that it was over, that the pattern had changed again, that a new pattern would be needed. Extraordinary, comrades. The dismay of breached resignation. Disappointment almost. At a trial postponed, a trial I had accepted and still resisted, whose stages I had anticipated and understood, a trial now cut short to my dismay, and the dismay mingling with the shock, the hope, then swallowed by it, all in an instant, swallowed by the joy, the exultation of my life, reopening, vast, without horizons, briefly, as the bolts were drawn, the locks were smashed, and the door, the great iron door, cracked open at Officer Scriven's shoulder, his breath coming in gasps from the effort as the hinges split with a noise like thunder after all that silence. And his cry of revulsion, I remember it. He must have turned aside for a second at the reek of us. Then his torchlight. A torch, comrades, just a torch. A torchlight. Sweeping quickly around the cell. And Brother Rubin, cowering, panic-stricken in my arms and yelping. And the torch veering towards the noise and still taking an age to reach it, an age. Then passing us, returning, fixing us, freezing my Brother Rubin in my arms like a child in my arms. And I blinded. Even my eyes, sharper than a cat's in all that darkness. 
blinded in a torch. And the torchlight merciless, unwavering, and I relaxing in his beam, lying back without shame against the wall. Flooded with calm, a century of calm, expectant, shameless. And I knew instantly, whoever he was, for I could not see him in the glare. I knew him as comrade, not enemy. And I knew the front must have moved to the west along the river line. The counterattack had come to the west, which was why I had not heard the echo of the guns. And a flanking force had slipped along the valley and stuck up through the birch forest in a circling movement. And an infantry squad was taking the silent monastery ruins at the heart of the sweep, the abandoned monastery. I understood it all instantly. The young lieutenant said only, oh, my God, which was as serviceable a phrase as any, I think, in the circumstances. And at the very same moment, I said, at last you must have stuck north through the birch forest. I remember it, the precise words. And I felt him stiffen. I felt him recoil over there at the far end of the torchlight in a broken doorway. And again, I understood immediately. I saw what he saw through his eyes. As the beam held me, I saw what it told him. I saw us, Reuben and me, transfixed in the light. And I was already weeping, uncontrollably weeping, in shame, in relief, in fear, in weakness. And holding my brother Reuben the closer as I wept. And then the torchlight moved from us. It began to seek out itself. I watched it move and fix and move and fix. And I saw again what Scriven saw. I saw the cell as I had never seen it, with someone else's eyes. The high walls, the carpet of blood like moss, the remains, the row of heads. Oh, the row of heads. How reverently Reuben had placed on those heads. Five heads in a row. Solemnly. Their eyelids closed, their faces to the wall, as solemn, as private to us, as undisturbed, as in the tomb, a brotherly tomb. But to him, the young lieutenant, unspeakably horrifying. And the torch moved back to us in the cool darkness, questioning. The young lieutenant tried to ask who we were. Were we his, he meant. Were we his? And I said, yes. Yes, I said. Yes, yes. Were yours. Captain Bukov, Major Rubin. Were yours. Were yours. And from those moments, comrades, perhaps you can appreciate. Silence, for me, was no recourse. If I am to return to the war, I must make my own report. I know that, even if only for your files. And in truth, I don't doubt there are words enough for the purpose. Words, that is, to say what is sayable, to tell you what you need to know about our cannibalism. Indeed, comrades, I at least suffer no crisis of identity. The dictionary itself defines me cannibal. Yes, cannibal. A cannibal in hospital tunic and size 10 regulation issue slippers. Pending your judgment, it seems I am still denied my uniform. When your young Lieutenant Scriven freed us from our prison, Reuben and me, he sent back for two greatcoats to cover us, which was typical of his thoughtfulness, his command of the situation. Barefoot, in a borrowed greatcoat, I walked upright and quite steadily from our tomb, without a pause, a backward glance, a mark of respect, remembrance, farewell. Doubtless the good Lieutenant recalled the fact. Oh, but I ask you, comrades. Am I likely to forget that room, that stone room? Did I need a last glance? Did I need any farewell? Comrades, I carry that cell within me, 
as it was in the sixty days before Scriabin broke the seal upon it. And I carried that cell within me as I left, barefoot in a borrowed greatcoat, climbing the spiral steps towards the light, my feet in the darkness, seeking the shallow imprints of a thousand years of holy men. When we crossed the lines below the birch forest, the greatcoat was taken from me and burned. I was given my white tunic, my regulation slippers, and left alone, isolate, observed, needing little medicine and no psychiatry, and therefore, I suspect, invested with imaginary deformities. A hump, perhaps, or fangs. Examine me, comrades, I say. Apply your customary standards. Am I not normal? A normal cannibal. A cannibal well-read in the classics, trained as an engineer, versed in the relativity theory and the second law of thermodynamics, familiar with the atom, aware that the flesh I ate was all but nothing, almost without substance, that my brother's souls registered no taste whatsoever. In other words, am I not the logical savage, compelled to justify my savagery because I can explain it? Comrades, my explanation shall be my defense. I am content to state the facts as I saw them. Of course, it is possible. You might trust my evidence the more, should I savor it with contrition, should I exhibit an intolerable weight of guilt. Comrades, even I could not trust this demonstration. In any case, I feel no guilt. Believe me, I say so without bravado. I recognize the certainty of my guilt, yet I do not feel it. And, for once, I see no paradox here. Since there could be no innocence in such a case, there must be guilt. Your categories insist upon it. The only issue, I think, is what must be done with me. The single courtesy I would ask would be some statement of the nature of my guilt. Conceding my guilt, of what am I guilty? What precisely have I done that should bar me from your own society and from the war? For myself, as I stand before you, in my heart, if you will permit me such simplicity, I cannot find my guilt. I feel no contrition, no terrible remorse. I feel neither pity nor self-pity. I feel the residue of many emotions which were once real. But I no longer feel the reality. Then what do I feel? Comrades, my defense is what I feel. Comrades, I feel alive. Forgive me, I cannot entirely explain what I feel. Standing before you, I say certain regions of my mind seem numb, as if cauterized. My memory, however, is clear. I believe my faculties unimpaired. Therefore, I present my report to you without embellishment, with what precision I can command, the report of our entombment. And, comrades, may I not claim now that this is the only duty I owe you in the matter, to report the occurrence as I might have reported any other occurrence of the war? For was this not as much a wartime occurrence as our heroic autumn drive upon Salient 7? An act of war, comrades, only an act of war, and I an actor in that war, Captain Bukov, comrades, Captain Andrei Bukov, Tank Squadron, 3rd Assault Brigade, begging to report an episode of war, 23rd of May to 22nd of July, at the monastery of St. Peter Rabinovich, bordering Katowice, southern Poland. Brothers, fellow combatants, at first, to see nothing unusual in our imprisonment, except, perhaps, the nakedness, which I have mentioned. The nakedness was unnerving. We were not unaware of certain, shall I say, irregularities occurring on our own side of the hostilities. 
And knowing how the war had degenerated of late, we waited at least for interrogation. We had no casualties. It had been a disaster, a rout. We just waited quietly, demoralized, uncertain, for 12 hours, I would guess. No one came near with questions or with food. Then suddenly, it must have been about dawn, the enemy moved out and left us. There was a great commotion, comrades, engines roaring, hatches closing, commands, tramping feet in the cobbles of the courtyard, high above, outside the little window. Then everything was silent. Eventually, someone, it must have been the colonel, suggested we build a pyramid to try and reach the high grill. Officer Rubin, may I say, once the gymnast, proved the pivot of this exercise, ungainly as it was. And after several calamities, we made lackluster acrobats. Officer Block, being smallest of the seven, was hoisted up to the bars where he managed only the briefest observation across the courtyard before the pyramid collapsed, with much attendant bruising, not least to Officer Block himself, who was left hanging perilously from the window grill for a second or so before falling heavily into the pile of bodies beneath with a quite consummate death howl, all of which caused great merriment and a momentary relief of tension. There was even something faintly hilarious at that instant in what he had seen. We lay there, crumpled in a heap, gasping with laughter. And Officer Blanc, between gasps, said, They've gone. They've all gone. And I remembered distinctly. We began to laugh again, on reflex, perhaps. Then, slowly, the laughter drifted away. We couldn't understand it. The monastery of St. Peter, we had fought and counterfought for it month by month through the snow and early spring. The chapels, the cloisters, the huge granaries were all in ruins. The dormitories destroyed. Only the tower remained remotely whole above ground after all that fighting. And now the enemy had moved out only 12 hours after recapturing it. Officer Block was quite specific. There was no sign of life outside. The defeat must have been more ruinous than we had imagined. Already the artillery seemed far away, only an echo, the faintest echo beyond the ridge. Up to that point, no one had bothered about the door, an enormous iron door set deep in the wall. Now, we all had the same thought. What about us? All at the same time. It was uncanny. The laughter drained away, and we were all looking at the door, the iron door, wondering, I know it, what about us? Well, naturally, Colonel Tretchikoff was the one to find out. I remember coming he was limping a little. His leg had been twisted in the fall. He walked across the door, examined it, found it fast and solid, felt in the wall surround, stood a moment with his back to us, his narrow white back, then turned and said, well, flatly, I thought, it, it's locked. Just, it's locked. With an odd smile at the corner of his mouth. The cell itself was obvious, like a water system cut from the rock. There was just that tiny hole high up beneath the roof. Officer Block said the window bars were firm. The opening was much too small, even for him. The cell floor was stone, not quite smooth, not quite perfect for all its wearing. At the beginning, we had sat or lain casually together in the center. Now, curiously, we all moved back against the walls, separate. We were waiting on the colonel, his assessment. There could be several explanations, he said, finally. We must wait, that's all. Later, several days later, I suggested we should keep definite track of time. 
It was about noon on the 11th day, by my account, that Officer Trechikov proposed drawing lots. Personally, I could never believe the enemy had simply left us, even towards the end. I still suspected it might be some ghastly experiment. We have not been averse to certain experiments of our own, I know, and I felt somehow we might be under observation. Right to the last, I felt sure they would come back eventually to check the results, and I do not know whether it was worse or better that they didn't, that they never intended to, or did they, that they merely left us to ourselves. We drank our own urine, then our own sperm, we sucked our own blood, we queued and climbed to ease our withering mouths on the damp rock round the grill. It was hopeless. Day by day, at different rates, we all passed through the various stages of crisis, thirst, hunger, pain, rage, acceptance, delirium, despair. Not surprisingly, some retained more control than others. It is a question of constitution, comrades, as well as a question of will. What frailties there were among us, or rather what precise varieties of reaction, I cannot possibly suggest without implying some judgment, some criterion for judgment of my brothers. And who, comrades, could presume to judge another in such a case without knowing him absolutely, his entire life, his experience, his medical history, his descent, which would be difficult at best, don't you agree? Personally, I know nothing, remember nothing, that might, in my own eyes, impeach any of my dead companions, and I would hope to say nothing that might impeach them in your different eyes. And nor shall I speak of my brother Reuben, except for my care for the facts makes it reasonable, and then only in my estimation to do him honor. I can speak with justice simply of myself, insofar as I know myself. And for myself, I can speak of the most ungovernable panics, the most demeaning fears and fantasies, the most groveling weakness in those early days when our situation was unclear, before it reached the extremity of some decision, before we attempted some strategy for endurance. I was about to say, comrade, some strategy for survival, rather, for endurance. That is, before our decision to draw lots with hair from our own heads at our brother colonel's suggestion. Until then, do you grasp the subtle refinement of taking our uniforms? Until then, Officer Trechikov had been first, as it were, among equals in our mutual nightmare. Until then, he had maintained the seniority of character. The seniority of character. It rings glibly, Thomas, doesn't it? Once too neat and too vague. Forgive me. Let me say, rather, that despite everything, the colonel somehow kept a chastening sense of care for his subordinates, and that through him... The gradations of rank proved for a time some help, a structure, if you like, to contain our suffering. Repeatedly, he reminded us that the monastery had been seized, lost, and seized again in the space of a single day, two summers before. Even if the enemy had abandoned us, there remained the near certainty of a counter-offensive, he promised, then we might be freed. For as long as he could, in fact, the colonel insisted our position had not changed, that we were simply combatants made prisoner. But finally, this became impossible. The tensions, comrades, perhaps you can imagine how we bayed like animals below the window grill, how we scratched and scraped our fingers raw upon the rock, the metal door. Finally, I say, the tensions were unmanageable. Twice we fell to blows, certain of us, and in the second brawl, one of us was bitten quite badly on the calf and shoulder. It was degrading, comrades. Battle-hardened officers, interdependent for our courage and skills, a thousand times dependent for our very lives, now we were turning against each other. We were no longer prisoners of the enemy, no longer prisoners of anyone. Prisoners only of the war, subject not to the great conventions, subject only to the war's caprice. It 
was an unfamiliar position. There had to be some decision of response. And it could not be a decision by rank or authority, if you will excuse the play on words. It could only be a corporate decision. Officer Tretchikoff knew this. The unmentionable had to be discussed. We had to reach some resolve before suffering carried things beyond us. It was like a staff meeting. I remember it vividly. We all moved together again into the center of the cell. The discussion was calm, at least relatively so. After the torments we had severally undergone, torments of mind and body, torment, comrades of the cancelled soul, after such torments, the act of coming back together was a great comfort, a new means of control. And in the calm of that control, we decided together that our only recourse, forgive me, was for each in turn to surrender our bodies to feed our surviving brothers. You are shocked, comrades. No. I do you an injustice. You are amazed, if I may say so, that such a course of action was selected rationally with due deliberation and accord. Nonetheless, I stress it. Despite the brawling, our decision was not one taken in frenzy. Not at that point, anyway. A decision of blood. Not even a case of the strong devouring the weak. No mere matter of survival of the fittest. Well, let me tell you, comrades, that the choice between reason and frenzy was not by any means the most difficult of our decisions, and once taken, and taken early enough, it was not in the circumstances, speaking relatively, you understand, especially hard to pursue. No. The question which caused most heart-searching was whether we should attempt a strategy for endurance at all. Now, perhaps I may summarize the predicament. If the price, as it were, of staying alive a little longer was progressively to devour each other, then was the price of staying alive worth paying. Might it not better reflect our dignity as human beings to die together in agreement than to divide ourselves so literally in our agony? In other words, comrades, collective suicide. You shudder. I see it. You almost disapprove. Our duty, you might say, was to endure, to ensure some element of survival at whatever cost for as long as possible. In the event of a change of fortune or a reversal of the military situation, which might free us or the surviving remnant of us for a return to the war. Exactly, comrades. Our sentiments, exactly. Endurance is all. As a group, at least, we decided that on balance, endurance is all. And you can have faint conception, I think, comrades, what emotion that decision created within us, what solidarity what mutual awareness, what brotherhood, what love. Oh, what extraordinary gestures humankind can make collectively, even at such moments of ultimate challenge. We felt we were giving dignity to what would follow. Upon reflection, how ridiculous what followed was merely appalling. How does one preserve one's dignity in cleaning another man's bones? Remember my witness, comrades, my silent witness if you will pardon the further generalization, it says what infinite capacity for self-delusion we humans also have. The more intolerable the reality of this war, the more we must preserve appearances. That is all. Appearances, not dignity. Where is my dignity that I must stand here to defend myself in such an awful case? Well, comrades, I ask you, in what am I dignified? Even now, I employ only another strategy for survival. I admit it here. Now, I seek to endure. That is all. 
to persuade you by reason to permit my return to the war. Now, what is the dignity in that? Forgive me, comrades. Such whining, such pointless whining. It must be an embarrassment to you. I apologize. Let me say simply that we, the seven of us, decided at the eleventh day to draw lots to reckon ourselves with the hair of our own heads. That Officer Tretchikov arranged and held the hairs, and that in the way such things happen, the lot fell upon him. His own silvering hair was the one he had broken. His own hair was the one left in his hand when we had each drawn in turn. And from that point onward, it seemed, our situation had a new logic. We had even agreed on a method of dispatch. The brother selected by lot was to be smothered, collectively. We wanted no executioners. The responsibility must be shared, in part for explanation in the event of our release, but principally, of course, to spread the burden of the deed. In a sense, I see it now, to ritualize the deed, to distance ourselves from it, if that were possible, through ritual. Officer Tretchikov made no complaint when the lot fell upon him. There was just that strange smile at the corner of his mouth. The rest of us watched him silently, relieved, frightened. Had the result been different? Had someone else been chosen? Well, naturally, you will wonder, comrades. I have wondered myself. But the fact is that Colonel Tretchikov was chosen. And whatever his feelings, he made no play of his seniority in the sense either of challenging or welcoming the reckoning. Gently, gravely, he embraced us all without distinction as we sat, kneeling to kiss each one of us, to whisper goodbye, to speak hope, and courage. Then he asked if he might be allowed to sleep. He went back to his place in the wall opposite the door, knelt again for a moment, though I could not say whether he prayed, then asked us to tell his wife, if any of us survived, that he thought of her as he died. And quietly, he fell asleep. Watching him from the center of the cell, we were astonished, strengthened, Pale, slight figure, curled like a child, knees drawn up. It was so correct. An act of love to confirm us, I interpret, in what we must do. We waited, listening for the measure of his breathing. Then we moved together, and holding his body firmly, we smothered him, our senior officer, with our hands, covering his eyes, covering his whole face, we extinguished him like a candle, so softly, so quickly. It took just a few seconds. He did not struggle. Only his body stiffened as he woke and remained taut a little and relaxed. We held him much longer than necessary to make sure. His beard, I remember, was thin and very soft. His body had scant hair. Perhaps he was 40, perhaps slightly older. Though, of course, such sentimental detail is irrelevant, comrades. It may even be in your files. You will wish me to proceed. And I shall say, in proceeding, that Colonel Tretikov's death was the means of prolonging life for his brother's. Yet, at the instant, the fact of it transfixed us. For him, 
He had confided at one point, suicide, speaking personally, you realize, was out of the question. And by the categories of our times, Comrades' attitude might be termed superstitious, the residue maybe of some childhood religion. Even so, leaving aside the matter of his beliefs, what Officer Trachikov actually said was that, given a choice, he would prefer to die against his will, however well he might resign himself, accommodate himself to the precise moment of dying. And in any case, he said, for all of us, it would be better to die, not separately, but as it were, collaboratively. Can I presume, comrades, that you've already pursued the logic of such collaboration? And then there were two, and then there was one. And to be sure, it leaves the problem of the last man. The last man, comrades, what of him? The question is obvious, and I admit it was never spoken. But our entombment, I think, was hardly a theological exercise. This is no parable I'm telling. Our strategy was an expedient, no more. Yet I have to confess that from the beginning it produced a situation none of us had properly foreseen. And being dead, Officer Tretchikov was now utterly separate. And the fact of his separateness was awesome, comrades. At first, the fact, the physical separateness, then its awesome implications. Our brother's body lay before us, his eyes closed, frail, I thought, so frail, and yet flawless. One minute he was asleep, the next he was gone, and the difference was so marginal, yet so awesome. All that had marked him out from us, his face, proportions, personality, all were redundant. What marked him out now was his lack of the one thing we had shared throughout our entombment, the vile air we breathed. Now, comrades, consider the irony here. Yes, forgive me, another irony. I apologize, but I beg you, consider. Together, we had stopped our brother's breath, and merely for lack of that breath, for lack of our shared rank air, Officer Tretchikov was dead, was different, was so awesomely separate, so still, that his stillness, his separateness, diminished his living brothers unutterably, reduced us, dwindled us, shrank the life within us, the life he had taken from him, shrank that life, I say, to a despair, an emptiness so total that it froze, it transfixed us as we knelt about his pale body and gazed at him, at what had been him, and was now nothing, only substance, inanimate, gross, separate, yet so nearly the same. Again, you doubt me, comrades. You ask, would six men who have killed a seventh for food then kneel, philosophizing while his corpse went cold among them? And I reply, in my own case at least, it was so. I would not think to try and speak for my brothers around me at that moment, all I know is that we were entranced and that in our immobility for a time, my own feelings were of despair. Fear, too, I confess it, fear. Yes, fear above all, a freezing fear, a shrinking from what had to follow. And in that fear, a sense that kneeling there beside my brother's body, what we were about to do, the self-preservation, could not possibly be worth the shame, the abasement it would involve. Comrades, it was a failure of our brief cohesion. Our brother's death had made us singular again, though we could not yet have known it. Another pattern of singularities was already emerging. Without common courage, we needed a singular courage. And it was my brother Rubin who supplied it. From courage, I say, not from hunger, not from desperation. We all shared his hunger, none of us shared his courage. For he it was who, suddenly, without warning, without a glance at the rest of us, moved forward a little on his knees and bent over the colonel's body and began to sway, comrades, to sway from side to side, rhythmically, his head and shoulders lowering a little at each arc, 
until his face was brushing the colonel's skin as he swayed, like some ecstatic comrade swaying, touching the skin, until all at once, as we watched, he stopped, his eyes closed, and with the slowest, calmest deliberation, he bit into the flesh, the flesh of the right chest, and then was still, as if in prayer, kneeling, bent, so still, for several moments, then raised his head and looked at us, each of us forced our eyes upward from the wound the hole he had made, from a thin trickle of blood, and, as we watched him, he chewed and swallowed what he had bitten and bent again to the same place. And one by one we followed him, followed him, I confess it, into a kind of delirium. And then rose separately and went to our separate places on the wall, not looking at what we had done, what we had left. And we lay silently. Some of us slept, I think. All of us at different points afterwards felt the most violent inner pains, and none of us moved to allay them until our brother Reuben again moved for us, moved back across the cell to what we had left, and was monstrously sick, fell to his knees and howled and howled and howled. And for those who scrambled to help him, it was the same. The rest of us cowered back against our walls. I, too, comrades, I cowered into my wall with terror. But Officer Reuben, my brother Reuben, led us, dragged us to see what we had done to go on as we had decided, together. And it was the same for us. It was unendurable coming to that flesh once more, what remained of it. But Reuben told us nothing had changed, that if we drew back now, our brother Tretchikov's death would have been wasted. Down there on the cell floor, he said, lay our only hope of sanity, of reason. Another paradox, comrades, another irony, wouldn't you think? And he forced us to our knees to eat a second time, and some of us followed him, some of us revolted and fell aside. And Officer Reuben pulled those of us back to eat again while that flesh remained good. All of us except Banaszewski, my friend Banaszewski, who would not be moved, even by my own pleading, by the pleas of his lifelong companion, but broke away and crawled to his place in the wall without a word and covered his ears from the sound of our feeding. As for our brother Rubin, comrades, he had, as it were, assumed command by courage, by force of character and will. For Colonel Tretchikoff had brought us to a decision. It was Major Rubin, a major only, Major Rubin, who made us, at the cost, of course, of our solidarity, that brief solidarity of equals, at the cost of some return to precedence. It was Major Rubin who helped us carry that decision through. It was Major Rubin who took charge of the lottery. Rubin eventually, who divided and shared our food, who broke the bones, pulled the limbs from their sockets, detached the heads, the heads of his brother's comrades. Major Rubin detached them and laid them together gently in the place where Officer Tretchikov had been the first to die and then composed the remains almost as if he were laying out a uniform for inspection, carefully, meticulously. I cannot exaggerate my respect, my admiration, my affection for the man. Upon himself, he took the terrible weight of our strategy, the dread, the spiritual agony. Willfully, he assumed it, having perhaps judged some such assumption necessary and himself perhaps equipped to bear it. He took responsibility, as it were, in a way 
transcending any mere matter of rank. He made it easier for the rest of us. He softened the test of collaboration. He helped us endure. At what final cost to himself, comrades, I cannot even guess. To see for yourselves there, that still model in your closed white room, that is Officer Rubin, who is mad, you will say. Show me your terms of reference for the word, comrades. By my terms, it is meaningless. Without application, it touches no reality. Reality for me, comrades, is my brother Rubin's bag of blood. Again, be assured, I do not seek to shock you. I merely present the facts, and here, comrades, yes, here is a fact for your digestion. When a carcass is eaten, as the body of Colonel Tretchikov was eaten, that is, forgive me, when it is devoured in near delirium, much blood is wasted that might be drunk. So, when Officer Lysenko, too, was put to death, Indeed, comrades, he was the second to lose his life by a hair's breadth in our lottery. At the second death, I say, our brother Rubin used a piece of the colonel's bone, delicately, to cut away a section of poor Lysenko's skin and fold it into a little bag and drain out his blood and bring it to us, each in turn, as we waited to drink before we ate the thick, warm blood. And similarly, when we had done, all of us, except my friend Banaszewski, who was himself dying secretly the while behind us at his place on the wall, dying silently, his own blood spreading towards us down the shallow slope of the floor from his corner where he lay, having cut his wrists, cut his wrists, comrades, with a loose tooth pulled from his own head. How casual I make that sound. A loose tooth pulled from his own head. Comrades, it was me. Kneeling beside Lysenko's corpse, it was me who first felt Banaszewski's blood, felt it welling against my leg, felt it spilling cool already around my knee and damming a little on Lysenko's thigh until suddenly I knew it should not be there, that blood, and paddled about me wildly and in a moment realized and shouted, Lev, shouted, Lev Alexandrovich, and scrambled across the cell towards him through his blood, knowing straight away it was too late, too late he was dead without a word to anyone, to me, Vukov, his friend who grew with him in Ryazan before the war, and his silence at that instant, comrades, hurt me more than his death. It seemed a betrayal, or rather a rejection. Is that what I thought? A rejection of, of us all, of what we were doing. And I beat upon him, upon my dead brother Banaszewski. I beat him, comrades, with my fists as he lay until Reuben was beside me as I cried, lifting me away and feeling for a pulse, a heartbeat, and finding none and saying simply, he's gone, he's gone. And I thought, this time I remember precisely, I thought, it's not fair, he's got out of it again. But only in the moment of shock, you realize even then, I knew it was wrong. Banaszewski, comrades, was a man of distance, of reflection. And that distance took him outside our collaborative situation. He told me so. We had talked a good deal, he and I, until lately. And he told me that, for him, our solidarity had snapped in his first expression, the destruction of Tretikov. For me, comrades, the first numbing sense of shame. Yes. Shame, I see that now, it was shame. But for me, it did not last. The monks of St. Peter, I presume, proved it possible to think, even to philosophize upon an empty stomach. But on a fuller stomach, it is possible within the hour or less to think quite differently. So it was with me. The new pain, my body resuming itself, was elating, insistent. 
It was the pain of necessity, unconsciously, doubtless self-protectively. I found I had re-accepted the need, my body's need for what we had done, very quickly, like most of us had appeared. I found my body compelling me to eat again. And the revulsion I felt at the sight of our brother Tretyakov's torn corpse was a revulsion of the body, no longer so much of the mind. A revulsion soon overridden by my body's greater need at Officer Rubin's prompting. And we ate again and again, more fastidiously, more and more tidily, always together, always in the same place, cleaning the last bone, leaving the head and very little else, until I was amazed at the quickening of my own flesh, the renewal I felt, new blood, new cells, new life. All real sense of identity in the colonel's flesh was gone. I found myself almost absent-mindedly examining the organs, the intricate simplicity of the mechanism. His body was, shall I say, objectified. And the correctness of what we had done seemed proven in the humming of my own body. I began to hope again, to anticipate release. But for my brother Banaszewski, comrades, it was not the same. For the rest of us, the odds still seemed reasonable enough in the circumstances at six to one. For Banaszewski, the whole idea of a second lottery was ludicrous. The meaning, he told me so. He held nothing against the rest of us, he said. We were all doing what we had to do, but he personally could not come to terms with Tretyakov's death and his own part in it. He grieved over it, over his shame. And for him, the shame remained. I felt renewal, he felt decay. He seemed possessed by the thought that the colonel's body was being transmuted within him only to excrement and urine. Indeed, comrades, are we all not scientists now? At least enough to know our own insubstantiality. Render me down, comrades, to my basic matter, and I too would be left less, far less, than the size of my own right testicle, or my left testicle as my right testicle would present itself to you. Left or right, it all depends. Except to my brother Banaszewski, for him... There were no more relativities. He said he felt himself disembodied, that he had abandoned his own flesh, that his mind was elevated physically, external to his body, somewhere high up above his head, upon the wall. And he laughed and said perhaps the colonel's mind was up there also, though it had not thus far established contact. Now, having eaten once, he refused to eat again. He pleaded with him, cajoled him, repeated all our reasoning, but he said simply that him, it was all over. The price was too high. The terms were no longer acceptable. The days he never moved. At the end, he did not even speak, except to refuse the second lottery. Accident was one thing, he said. Willful submission to chance was another, and he would no longer submit to anything. And by then, he was so far removed from us, his distance was so great that not even Officer Rubin could challenge him. But for all his distance, my brother Banishevsky must have heard the death of poor Lysenko and the preparation of our gourd of blood. And he killed himself. To me, the fact of his death was a total surprise. To the others, it was obvious. Officer Rubin had no need to force him to the lottery. Which may raise the question in your minds, comrades, whether Officer Lysenko need have died at all. For my promised adherence to the facts, compels me to state that he died unwillingly. Part One of Judgment by Barry Collins Colin Blakely was heard as Captain Vukov. The play was produced by the BBC and presented by Earplay, the radio drama production center for public broadcasting.
Earplay is made possible by grants from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and the National Endowment for the Arts. This is NPR, National Public Radio.